Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. This is our Friday show. And I'm here, of course, with the regular Friday crew, including Natasha Moskarinas. Natasha, hello. How are you doing? It's December. I'm doing great. I take it you're a, you're a holiday type person. I'm a big holiday type person, except I hate peppermint mochas. So I just want to go on the record <laughs> there and say that. It's disgusting. You know, you don't have to drink those. They still make Americanos year round. Marianne, <laughs> I know you're an espresso fan. Please tell me why peppermint should not be in caffeinated drinks. Well, I actually think it's okay. As oh. long as it's not too strong. Okay. Well, Sorry. you're off the show. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the end of that. Uh, no, we can't. Um, we actually have a lot to get through today, guys. I, I thought it was going to be one of those weeks when not much happened, but instead everything happened this week. So we're going to talk about Square changing its name. We have three of the coolest funding rounds we've talked about all year. We have Better.com. We have Executive Turnover Notes. And we have another gigantic crypto fund that we need to talk about. So it's going to be busy. But Natasha, the news that we added to the very top of our doc is all about Square, or really the artist formerly known as. <laughs> so so Square, like everyone except us, has chosen to mm-hmm. rebrand. They are rebranding to Block. And to quote the wonderful Chris Gates, our producer, he was like, like Block, like blockchain, definitely Block, like blockchain. That's what, exactly <laughs> what they're referencing. And it comes just days after Jack Dorsey resigned from Twitter. So I don't know about you guys. Feels like great timing, even though they claim the name change has been in the works for a year. Yeah. Marianne, when I think block, I think H&R block. I'm not sure what to think of this. It it threw me for a loop. And then I saw all over Twitter, does that mean the employees are now called blockheads? And then I couldn't get that out of my head. So I don't know. But didn't Square that is now block say that it's, it's also referencing the neighborhood blocks where it finds its sellers that it's so they kind of were, I think, trying to say it's not all about blockchain. It's also about block parties full of music, obstacles to overcome, a section of code. Building blocks. And of course, tungsten cubes. I right. think the quote ends. Look, it's a marketing thingy. But what I will say is it helps me understand some other stuff that that Square did. Like, for example, Square buying title, the music service, made no sense. Square is a consumer money transference and corporate payment system. Block as a holding company that has things that might interlink together creates more space, I think, for title to exist, maybe to plug into the crypto work. Maybe there's NFTs, blah, 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 blah. I, I kind of get it. And normally I, I I mock this sort of corporate crap <laughs> because like who really thinks about Alphabet when we all know it's just Google in a suit right. uh, and Meta was obviously crap and a PR move. But like Block, you know what? OK, I'm fine with this one. I'm with you. I'll take it. Yeah. It's not the yeah, worst it's- rebrand. Right, right. It's. I think it's less. Um, <clears throat> it seems less silly than a lot of the other rebrands we've seen. It, like it does school. seem to have a. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This one seems to have like to Alex's point as well. Like it's a, a little more validity behind it. Yeah. Also, that I forget which one of us said we didn't rebrand, but we did because we used to be Extra Crunch and now we're TechCrunch Plus. So oh like God. actually. We're part of it. Yeah, but we were earlier than Block, though. So I think Jack Dorsey owes his lunch. I think is how <laughs> that, that works out. Um, <laughs> listen, let's not let's not get bogged down. We have talked enough about Jack, I feel, on the podcast this week. In fact, probably too much. Sorry about that. Uh, it turns out Jack just really wanted everyone to talk about his beard. But moving to funding rounds, we have three, and they are, well, not we have three startup stories, actually, Marianne. The first mm-hmm. one is, is, is about a company, but it's not actually a funding round. So tell us about empathy and, and why you wanted to write a profile on this. Yeah. So this founder out of Detroit approached me after I wrote a a story about another kind of social app. 
And I was just really intrigued by his passion. You know, he was a digital artist and a few years back was kind of like, you know, this just isn't so fulfilling. I'm not not feeling great about what I'm doing, even though I spent all this money and time in school. Long story short, he started feeling a little depressed, a little anxious about this stumbling block in his life where he felt like he wasn't sure what to do. Then he started thinking, well, I, I don't feel comfortable sharing this with other people because, um, you know, social media, most people only show the highlight reels, right? Like the really great stuff. Oh, the party, the great dinner, the, you know, the fun stuff. And, you know, so it makes a lot of people feel like shit about themselves most of the time. So anyway, he started thinking like we need a different kind of social network. One that's like more real that show that gives people the space to like be raw about their emotions, whether they're feeling down or they're feeling upset. So he created empathy. And the goal is to be a social network that mirrors the real human experience. So how does it go about doing that? Because Twitter is where I go to show off my emotional <laughs> state. And yeah. I realize that I probably shouldn't because I'm a quote, quote professional, but how, how does empathy create this room, Marianne, for me to, yeah. to share more real and deep emotional things? Yeah. Well, users, unlike a lot of the other platforms, either have to share via, via audio or video. It's not writing or photos, which is, you know, kind of a, a different model. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but anyway, that's the approach. And it also allows users to filter by mood, depending on their mood. And those moods are, you know, they vary. They vary from things that aren't always great, like angry, sad, or happy. So it's not just about like not feeling good. It's also for the people who are feeling good, but it's just meant to be a broader mix. Part of me is like, I think thirst traps are inevitable on a lot of like social media platforms, especially ones with video. So I totally see this place not being able to control how vulnerable their users are mm -hmm. at, at reaches a certain scale. But the things I do like about empathy are that they have this monthly overview. So they track what you're saying throughout the month and then they'll kind of help you reflect on that month at the end, which I think is a trend that's already starting to happen. I, a lot of my friends have started posting on Instagram in month monthly installments like they do like a photo dump of each month so mm -hmm. I don't know I think part mm -hmm. of that 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 felt interesting to me is that people definitely are in a space where they want to be more reflective and mm -hmm. it would be cool if technology does that for you as we've all seen through our Spotify unwrapped this week. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say I mean yeah. like I think people absolutely love to see recaps of what they've done I mean right. Spotify unwrapped is a marketing play yes but it's also a reflection of myself given just to me I mean, I sat with my spouse yesterday on the couch and I, she or her spot on her out of dates to update her app. And then she went through her, <laughs> her thing. And we shared uh, only one artist in our top five, which was Taylor Swift. But like, you know, it was so fun to see more of what she's been listening to. Like I don't listen to enough Valerie June. Good reminder. And so to me, if empathy, sorry, empathy, it's really hard to get the N in there because I'm so used to saying M. I know, right. That's <laughs> I think everyone's natural inclination, right. A great name though, but I, I think if it, if it can elicit more from us and help us look back at it at the same time, fantastic. I, I'm, I'm here for it. But Marianne, they haven't raised money yet because they're waiting. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, they're trying to raise on Kickstarter for now. He, the founder's been a little hesitant to go the VC route just yet. He doesn't want to be in the position of like feeling like he has to add features to impress investors and that kind of thing. So that's not to say they would never want venture money, but he just wants to be careful in the very early days, I guess, protect his vision. So yeah, I thought it was a cool story. Yeah. And the founder is um, Zaire Kenya Smith. So a name to keep tabs on. I'm sure we'll hear about this company again down the road because, well, we're all sad as we discussed in the pre-show. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to transition from talking about social media companies to a little bit more of a meta world, which is a startup called Massive that wants to rent your spare compute power to pay for apps, maybe an app such as Empathy one day. 
Alex, this made some sense to me. I know it's cool, but it sounds like there's both precedent and a lot of room for us to all be renting out our spare spare time on our laptops. Yeah. So essentially what Massive wants to do is let people pay for stuff online, not with their attention via advertisements or not via their checkbook, via subscriptions or one-time payments, but through spare compute power. And so the company uh, just raised $11 million, 0.72 ventures, Coinbase ventures was in there, which matters for a reason I'll get to in a second. But the idea is uh, if you go to an application and let's say you're in a part of the world where payments are tough or you don't have access to the right currency or you don't have a credit card, whatever, you might be able to access a, an app or a service by lending a bit of your compute power to Massive. And then what Massive will do is sell that off to someone else down the road, aggregate that, and then they kind of have this, this neat distributed compute model that works out quite well. And the example, to Natasha's point, is SETI, which is S-E-T-I, or I believe the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And it, they used to have this cool screensaver you could run that would lend your spare CPU cycles to help search for intelligence out there in the universe. So far, we haven't even found intelligence here on Earth, so <laughs> a struggle. Uh, but perhaps in time, we'll be able to find some intelligence in both places. I mean, I really like hacky sorts of even invisible business models in a way like this exists and it doesn't really impact us as users too much. It sounds like, but Marianne, I'm curious, what do you think? Like, would you be comfortable with a company renting some of your power to power other apps? Yeah. I mean, I think it sounds really, really cool. Like it's interesting and could be a big problem solver for a lot of people, but my non-technical brain sort of hurts trying to understand how that would work in real life. Okay. So I think the way this works out, and again, this is for desktop only, so you can't do this on your phone yet. Okay. So you couldn't use Massive to pay for like an Uber ride. And also the dollar amount is going to be a lot lower than that. So the way the way that I understand it, Marianne, is I would go to a thing and they'd be like, hey, you know, you can give us a little bit of money or you can install Massive and we'll take a little bit of your compute power. You probably download something. And then mm -hmm. what happens is Massive goes, look, world, we have 100,000 people that are lending us some of their compute cycles. Do you want to buy this massive bucket of computing power? And if you are, say, a company that does work in crypto and you wanted to apply CPU power to mining or confirming blocks, which is why Coinbase Ventures is in the company, uh, you can buy this compute from Massive, who then distributes the money back to the application owners themselves, and the money flows that way. You, the user, don't pay anything. The crypto doesn't cut down another square mile of rainforest. And uh, theoretically, the app in the middle and massive do do well is is the idea. That's fascinating. I, I'm here for it. I mean, like, I to me, me the user, I don't need this because I live in a world where Visa works. You know what I mean? Right. But if I was in a market where that's just not the case, or I, I couldn't afford the same price point, like if I was in like, I don't know, like like rural India, for example, where internet penetration is rising very very quickly, but people don't have as much wealth, say, you know, this might be a way to get a lot more tools out there to more people without charging them you know, dollars and dollars for it. So, so they raised 11 million read by 0.72 ventures with participation from a lot of crypto themed funds. But one thing that I was curious about is that they're not looking to replace revenues. So how did you square up like this big raise and also them being pretty clear that they're not going to be helping startups, you know, recover revenue? Well, yeah, that's the kind of the, the the cool thing about this, because your compute power, Natasha, that you could donate from you're on a MacBook Pro, right? Right. Right. Okay. So like, let's say, well, and you also run Chrome and select, so you have no spare CPU cycles, but imagine that you weren't <laughs> using two corporate apps at the same time yeah. and therefore rendering your computer mute and you had 10% spare. What's that worth? Not that much, frankly. It's like, like in terms of like dollars, it's not that much money. Yeah. And so the company doesn't want to replace revenues that exist for startups. Like if you're a, a gaming company today and you sell your game for $5, you're not going to be able to get $5 back from borrowing compute time. 
But if you want to have another 100 million users around the world, all of whom are willing to access your, to your game in exchange for compute power, you can greatly widen your pool of users and probably drive more total revenue, but you're not replacing revenue from a core market where you already have paid users, for example. So it's a way to more expand the pie versus like turn a slice of blueberry pie into quiche. <laughs> I'm just impressed that that many people have spare compute power, quite frankly. Again, Marianne, they don't run Chrome, Slack, <laughs> or TweetDeck. Like right. <laughs> the three applications that are essentially like fudge for your CPU. I feel like we can keep going with this theme of uncovering existing issues and uh, blind spots within companies. Marianne, you wrote a piece this week that you loved, Butter. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I don't know, I, I feel like I haven't seen you this excited about a startup in a long time. So tell us about it. <laughs> the reason this company stood out to me is like, especially in the fintech space, so many startups, what they're doing sounds so similar. It gets hard to tell anybody apart anymore. And so this is, Butter's doing something like, I haven't heard of any other startup doing, not saying that there isn't one, no, another company, but like, I haven't heard of it. Okay. There's this, this young man named Vijay Menon, a statistician by trade. He started his career at Microsoft and mm. he noticed that there were a lot of these payments that weren't going through. And, you know, he was wondering why, like, so he started digging into it, digging into it. Long story short, he realized there was a lot of payment failure happening either at the renewal stage or like with people trying to sign up or subscribe. And so he helped, he helped develop technology that helped the company recover over 10 million Xbox Live subscriptions, which resulted in more than $100 million in recovered revenue. He went on to work at Dropbox and uh, another B2B SaaS company, realized the same problem was happening. So eventually he started, he teamed up with Atomic Venture Studio, founded this company called, ready for it? This is the startup name of the week. <laughs> Butter. And Butter's <laughs> butter's goal is to stop this accidental payment churn that's uh -huh. happening probably <laughs> at every SaaS company or subscription company out there, B2B especially. They could have a logo that was one of those old-timey butter churns, you know, with like a, the, the red circle with a line through it. And then their, their slogan could be, don't churn, comma, butter. <laughs> that's good. That's Sorry, really what, good. What people don't realize is when Marianne wrote the story, she she came to Natasha and I in our little little, little group chat and we, we were vamping about titles with her. And it was just so hard to not reach for the most egregiously oh awful puns. Like and good job to butter because we were making ourselves laugh at least. Hundred <laughs> percent no, agreed. We all agreed it's a really clever name that actually fits what the company's doing pretty well. I'm impressed. Um in less than a year, I think they already have about a dozen customers. They couldn't name them all on the record, but some seem to be pretty high profile with lots of revenue. They're solving a really big problem, especially for people in other countries who have who have trouble making payments because they're getting rejected by these US-based companies for having a payment that is originating out of another company, which really sucks. You know, it's not fair. So I'm just intrigued, like in so many different levels as to what Butter's doing. I think it's smart. I think it's going to solve a massive problem if they continue to work and help a lot of people in the process. Another company, Marianne, that I just remember talking to recently was um, Plug Pagamentos, which I think is in, based in Brazil. And they're trying to improve payments, acceptance and, and cost profiles for that particular market. I think Butter's more focused on other parts of the world. But it, it's an enormous problem. If you ever run a recurring subscription business, having cards fail on, on re-up for no reason, the, like the user didn't cancel, but the payment method failed, 
is an enormous cause of churn, which hurts your numbers and your growth and your retention and everything. Right. This is kind of like a holistic health boost for a, for a recurring revenue company. Yeah. And I mean, he was he was telling me that most of the time the company doesn't even realize it's happening. It's just like, you know, the customer gets annoyed or frustrated and then just gives up in many cases. And then, you know, the, the company's lost revenue and it just adds up. He was estimating that for a company that's $100 million in ARR, they could see an AR lift of one to four million, Ooh. which that's that's not insignificant. No, yeah, pay for small sites. I mean, I guess that's a good counter argument to the point that I was about to bring up, which is like, how do we know that this company isn't just a nice to have, or is it okay that it's a nice to have? Because I feel like a lot of startups have been okay with this for a while. I'm sure. So you probably have to be a certain profile of company or certain stage or spending power in order to bring something like this on. Yeah, he said that this company so far, the customers are doing 10 million to 500 million in revenue. And that on average, he helps them find or the company helps them find a million dollars of revenue per year. That's on average. Now, also keep in mind, it's a revenue sharing model. So, uh, you know, there we go. Yeah, so the company's <laughs> not going to it's not going to lose money. You know, they they're, they're only going to be paying if they recover customers. So I think that's a pretty sweet deal for a company. Like they really don't have much to lose. That's why I'm so impressed with it. And Marianne, you told us you were excited about this one. And before I read the story, so I was like, okay, what is she seeing here? That's, that's so different. And I liked the, the problem space, but I liked mm -hmm. the business model more because how hard of a sales process is it to say to a company, hi, you're doing a hundred million in ARR. Do you want an extra two? I'll take X number of hundred K of that. I'll, I'll ship you free money. Right. Yeah, I, I exactly. Mean, yes. I'll say yes to that. I think all day and twice on Tuesday. So. Exactly. Yeah. So I think this is definitely one to watch. It did get me super pumped and I'll be I'll be paying attention in the future. You know who's not super pumped, though? <laughs> yeah. Employees of better.com. But you know who is pumped? Better.com. God damn Marianne, it. <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> yeah. This is one of those stories in which uh, it's a little, little tough, but there's two parts here. There was some capital that came in and there's some layoffs that happened in quick succession. Right. Yeah. So on Tuesday, we found out that Better.com, a digital mortgage lender, was getting some money sooner than expected from its SPAC backers. And we're talking by some money, we mean $750 million, right? So I got my hands on an enthusiastic email from the CFO to employees about, hey, we're going to have a billion dollars on our balance sheet by the end of the Ooh. week. Whoa, whoa, whoa. All this enthusiasm. Then come to find out the next day that they laid off 9%, at least 9% of their staff. That's what the company is telling us. I've seen some tweets of, of, I guess, employees alleging it's about 15%, company maintaining 9%. You know, clearly this, A, sucks really bad for the employees. But even worse, I think what's really um, bothering a lot of people is the way that this allegedly took place these layoffs took place this is not the first time we've seen we've seen layoffs and companies raising capital but what's interesting to me about this is it feels kind of disconnected from other bits of, of the environment that we're seeing like when we go back to like toast and easy cater layoffs in the early pandemic okay that's because their business model didn't square up with the changed economy but in this case marianne i i feel like we're seeing mortgage rates rise and some mortgage originations fall but like it doesn't seem like there's been as much of a lightning shock to the system so to see them raise money good and then fire nine to 15 percent of their staff it seems dissonant to me and like but i'm just gonna say it seems freaking greedy like it seems mean like you yeah. couldn't keep your staff on board you just you got all the money in the world what the hell what i've been hearing is there's a couple of factors one last year when the interest rates dropped to like historic lows refinancing went you know people were going crazy 
refinancing their homes. That led to a big, big boom in business for these companies. But now that's dropped off for one. And then secondly, supposedly better has been working to automate a lot of things. And apparently they've done such a good job of that, that they don't need as many human people anymore. But I mean, bottom line, whatever their reasons are, I think it was all handled sort of maybe not the best. Like it it was just kind of weird to hear this, hear this, oh, we've got all this cash. And then all of a sudden the next day, this news of we're having to lay off. So I feel like there should have been that should have been maybe revealed at the same time to be fully transparent. And then also that the talk is that these employees were like told via a Zoom meeting that they were going to, to be laid off like this mass notice. And then all of a sudden their computers were like shut off. That, that, that's the best. So imagine, imagine everybody, you hear the day before your company raised extra money and they have a billion dollars in the balance sheet. You get called to a meeting. You think probably I'm getting a raise. Right, right. You go to the meeting, you get fired, and then your computer shuts down. How hard is it to not throw the computer through the nearest window at <laughs> yeah. that point? I would be doing that. I mean, I, this is better.com should be better, as I said in our <laughs> prep meeting. And, and also, like, it is kind of frustrating to me to like seek press about you raising money. I definitely seen startups when they announce like positive earnings talk about layoffs, but they're not completely, I guess trying to get all the attention and glam of like a fundraise and then immediately lay people off. So if it was part of the deal and this was a precondition, layoffs were a precondition to this fundraise, that's fine. But why did they have to pursue it the way they did? It makes me think that did they think no one was going to, you know, <laughs> find out? And I mean, come on, in the, this age of social media, like we anybody should know better than that. Like there's no way that you can keep that kind of thing a secret. So like my advice was maybe like maybe you should have mentioned that the same day that you talked about the fundraise. It would have come off a lot better. Why are we talking about this from a comms perspective? <laughs> I know. True. Like, it's just annoying. Should this, <laughs> they shouldn't have laid the people off. Well, 100%. Uh, well, but like if I that mean, was necessary. Yeah. I mean, not necessary in that I guess there is a, probably an argument that one of the investors could have made where they were like, you need to trim this in order to raise. Not saying that, that this is why I'm not a CEO, because that would break my heart. But right, like, right. That does feel like, like something that happens, right? Yeah. I mean, it could have happened. It could have been an investor condition. We don't really truly know, right? Yeah. We don't really know exactly what led to the layoffs. But And I am sad, super sad. It's the worst kind of scoop to have. To have. But I think like what's what really was bothering us, I guess, as reporters, is just like the way it was all handled and just like putting ourselves in the shoes of these employees and how they how they must feel. And so I don't think it's so much a comms issue. I think we are critiquing the way it was handled by the company as a whole, too. So I just want to say this, like if you do have money and you miss high or ended up with too many people, I think you have a moral obligation to not lay them off on Moz like this, right? I, I, because because companies love to ask for more from you. Like, oh, we're a family, stay late, work a weekend, make sure you do those emails on your vacation, whatever. But then the moment they don't need you, they treat you like literally a piece of dog shit they're trying to get off their shoe. Yeah. And I think that is not just amoral, I think it's immoral. And I think we shouldn't just be like, well, there was an investor covenant. Say no to the covenant. Bring less money forward in your SPAC. Like, I mean, if you hire people, you are taking on a, a, an obligation to not be a jerk because these are humans' lives and no one has that much money. Most people don't have a lot of money. So if you lay them off, it can be an enormous financial crisis for their family, for their children's education, for their health care. Like, like we, we are too nice to companies, I, I think, and raising and getting $750 million early and then firing your staff, in my view, should be like a, a moment of shame. Like we failed so hard 
we had to fire people when we raised money. That's how badly we screwed up our business. So that's how I read this. Like, like, fuck them. It's not okay. Yeah. And it's just all, all feels cold and dismissive. So like I said, it wasn't a fun story to write. I feel like there's more to it that meets the eye and potentially it'll come out one day. Yeah. I think in these kinds of stories, it's less about rationalizing the layoff and more about trying to understand why companies act the way they do. Because I agree, Alex, with what you said of like the moral obligations of being a founder or else everyone would be a founder and everyone would just play with people's lives. It's a tough thing you sign up for. So you should handle it better. But that is taking us to our next section, which is about all the executive yeah. turnover that happens. Maybe this is like it, it all happened within the same week on purpose. So we'd be forced to reevaluate <laughs> the brands that we listen to, the executives we quote and the companies that we pay attention to. It, it, it's hot quit winter, everybody, or hot promotion winter, I guess, is Salesforce. 100 percent. So we saw executive turnover with he who must not be named earlier this week. But then we also have another guy that we should be paying attention to. Brett Taylor. It is Brett Taylor week. He is the chair of the Twitter board now with Dorsey's departure. And he yes. also got promoted to Salesforce co-CEO, whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. And yet, and yet. So uh, Brett Taylor has been in the running for the succession at Salesforce for some time. Uh, another name that was brought up was Stuart Butterfield. There's some questions about, did Salesforce buy Slack to bring Stuart aboard to put Stuart atop the company? Maybe. Who knows? But we do know that Brett Taylor is now, quote, co-CEO. However, Marianne, it's not really a co-CEO role. What, what they've kind of done, as far as I can tell, is moved Mark Benioff up a notch somehow, made Brett Taylor CEO beneath him, and then have all the execs report to Brett. So what Mark has done is retire in place because he just talks to Brett now? Seems like a good role. And Brett's reporting to him, which is yeah. counter to what was, we all originally thought. Yeah, this feels like one of those situations where like communication is going to have to be so key to, <laughs> to both of them right now, which is pretty obvious. But I know Ron wrote that piece where he interviewed a few analysts and he was saying that like this also requires the originally senior person to relinquish responsibilities. And that's a really hard thing to do when you've been in charge for so long. So I'll be interested to see how that shakes out, because obviously Brett's had a great week, but this is like a lot of changing of guard happening within the same week put on his plate. I don't know. And I also feel like co-CEO is just misleading because that implies they're on the like same level. And if you're saying that he's now reporting to Mark, that just is a contradiction in my opinion. Absolutely. It's poor branding. But the way that I'm reading this now that we have all the details is that Mark is going to retire because he's got more money than God and prefers Hawaii to less temperate climates. And you know what? Fine. I would also get an enormous boat and f*** off. But he wants to get the succession going and end the speculation. So call Brett, co-CEO, and then give him all the executives reporting into him to get that experience. And then he can leave. And then the handoff is much less abrupt. It's a little bit more obvious. And, and so to me, it makes sense. Just don't call them co-CEOs. Just, right. just, just yeah. declare this system. And then, you know, it, it, again, it's, it, it's branding slapped over something that doesn't quite fit the label. You yes, know? Yeah, yes. totally. And so we all have obviously been talking about the great resignation on this show for, for months now. And we saw that happen again this week when Facebook's top crypto executive, David Marcus, announced that he's leaving the company. I think nice. everyone's guessing that similar to Jack, he's going to be doing some crypto stuff. But that's different <sighs> than this co-CEO shenanigans. Yeah, <laughs> I, the, the, the David Marcus thing we probably wouldn't bring up in the abstract if it wasn't part of this broader series of changes. And also, I would just say part of some changes at Facebook that we've seen. So also this week, there was Julian Cordonier, I think, probably somewhere like that, uh, who ran Facebook's workplace platform. 
And so, you know, a couple of, of exits from Meta, I suppose. And then I, I, my question, Marianne, because you've been a reporter longer than I have, is, is, you know, is this just like people getting out all the news before the holiday dead period? And so we're just seeing a lot of this come together at once. Or does this actually feel like a change in the wind to you? I mean, when it comes to Meta, it feels like a, more of a change in the wind. I mean, it's these are two of, what, seven or so executives who've left this year. And, you know, we've seen a rebranding. All of that just doesn't feel coincidental. Uh, you know, yeah. there's I feel like there's some I don't know if I wouldn't I don't know if dissent's the right word, but like maybe a lot of executives just aren't aren't happy with the direction of the company or where it's going and, and they just want to move on. Definitely. I think like change is going to be really uncomfortable for so many people. And that seems like it's going to be a big theme of 2022 for all of us. Like Metaverse went from something that was kind of a joke to a rebrand that actually now is causing like a ripple effect of either departures or doubling down. So I feel like we're going to have our work cut out for us in the new year. Mm-hmm. We absolutely are. And speaking of work cut out for people, one thing that people do to deal with their rising workload, especially when they are uh, startup executives, is get coaching help. And uh, we have just a little nugget here from Natasha about a, a really neat funding round from Sounding Board. Yeah. So this is a startup I've covered for a while. I actually met the CEO in person this year, which is weird Woo! as hell. Um, but she was <laughs> cool as hell. But they are trying to make executive coaching kind of a more fluid process of your day to day. I don't know if any of us have ever been through executive coaching. Alex, maybe you have when you were at Crunchbase. I got to do executive communications coaching, which was Yay. slightly different. It was more about comms and why I'm not good at them. Oh, good. Love that. Um, well, <laughs> I needed the help, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, executive coaching usually is like this once a quarter seminar. And Sounding Board, like a lot of other companies, want to make it part of like your everyday. So they launched a coaching service and they just raised a Series B. I like that they've admitted that mentorship doesn't need to just be like a coach talking to an employee. So they built a SaaS platform so your managers can be part of the process. And a little different than like your mental health support that you might find in your benefit system. What about if we have like a formal incentive for your employer to pay attention to how, yes. you know, how good you are doing with with your leadership communication? And the reason why we're fitting this in isn't just because it kind of fit into the topic of executive changes and, and, and how people work and all that. But like, it's a really cool example of a company going from a kind of like a people first business into a software first business. And we don't tend to see that transition too often. And so like, I, I'm kind of, very curious to see how Sounding Board does with this new Series B money because it's an enormous. It feels like a, like a, like a, like a, a gamble of a shift, in not a bad way. Like this is a, the smart wager to make. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious to know what happens uh, next and how well it scales, and you know how many SaaS apps we can actually sell to the HR department of today. I don't know if the answer is infinite, but we'll see. Yeah, and uh, we're actually we're getting. Uh, red flags from the production crew who are telling us that the last section of the show is no longer necessary because Thank we are God. overtime. So I'm just going to be brief and say there's another crypto fund coming out. It's worth a billion and a half. And, uh, eh. and with that, we're back on Monday. Bye. <laughs>